are there so many different denominations? What does it mean to be in the Church of the Nazarene? And why are we wearing holiness bow ties today at Kingdom of the Logos? We're going to get to that all and more. Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and you can follow me on Twitter at J. Dylan Proctor. But I'm not alone here in Cord Purgatory. Of course, our co-host, Pastor Amanda Sparrow, is here. Hi, and I obviously am not wearing a holiness bow tie, but the well, others are. <laughs> we are going to be talking about the history of the Church of the Nazarene a little bit, really more in philosophy than necessarily in some of the specifics of history. We tried to get her to dress up as someone like Phoebe Palmer or some of the, the immense clothing that some of the the female preachers used to wear back in the day, but I guess that will have to be saved for the future. <laughs> Anyways, Amanda is not alone with me either. We also have Anthony Alegria. And here's my shout out to Mike Proctor with a watch check. I am wearing the competition vintage watch and it's got a clear case back. Yes, it does clear all the way and it's a mechanical watch. Anthony wants to do the whole watch check thing, but you got to get into it, man. It's a mechanical watch. You wind it up. It's made in parts of the world where they make finely tuned items, and it's entertaining to listen to it click. I also have a mechanical watch on today's, too. It's a cami made in Switzerland. Not as reliable as one would hope it to be, but it's another issue. Anyways, today we're going to have some fun issues. Thank you for joining us. We've had a few things that people have sent to us. We are going to be talking about the Church of the Nazarene today. First of which, we were at Springfield Church of the Nazarene recently, and they sent us a pillow. We did win this pillow, actually. I don't think it was a direct gift. Um, we were not winning it as a result of card games, <laughs> anything involving dice or gambling. gambling. And of course, that's the way of saying it was a result of gambling, but not really. There was no dancing or movies involved. It was just good holiness fellowship and a pillow come home. But also, aside from that, it really is a beautiful work of art. If Amanda can pull that back up again, it's something which is really being lost in the modern world, the art of quilting. And our sister in Christ who made this up from Springfield Church of the Nazarene, one of the most fascinating things I've sat through, yes, believe it or not, a man could actually listen to quilting and learn some things. It's something that you wouldn't expect, but it was very, very fun. I don't do anything of that nature, but it was really fun to learn about. Beautiful quilts, and the ladies that do this, they just have such such an artistic capacity. It's amazing. Another thing that people are making that they have made for us, some here locally at Jolton, the little crosses. These are things which we find throughout the history of the Nazarene church. They're little trinkets and things that we can have in our house. But the question is, why do we have these trinkets? Why do we want crochet crosses? Why do we want quilts and things like the cathedral window pillow? What does it mean to be in the church of the Nazarene? Amanda, what are we going to be talking about today? So we are going to be talking about why we are in the Church of the Nazarene. Now, Kingdom of the Lagos, this program is produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And we ask the, to remind you to like us on Facebook, subscribe to our channel on YouTube. And like you said, today we're going to discuss a Wesleyan approach. Um, so Wesleyan or holiness um, are maybe some terms that we use today, and we'll go into more about that. But especially our approach towards scripture and Christian holiness as opposed to fundamentalism. Yes, and after we get towards the end of this, we may review some things people have sent to us in a little bit more in depth. We may talk a little bit more about this cathedral window pillow, but there was a picture that was also sent to us, and Anthony can pull that up now for you. Recently, we covered a story. We're about a thousand years behind the news, unfortunately, <laughs> which is kind of relieving because you can really have a clear mind of it. <laughs> But we covered a story about some monks who stole a relic, uh, well, the bone relics of St. Faith or St. Foy. 
and they took these bone relics to their chapel because nobody would visit their chapel and they're like, we can have some serious church growth if we steal these relics. So one of our viewers sent us this and it's a great answer. We could have dogs fill the pews. <laughs> it's not that uncommon at Jolton for there to be a doggy here around. Uh, I know who the pastor is personally, so I don't want to rat myself out to <laughs> myself. But anyways, dogs filling the pews is a good solution, I do I do believe. We can ask can our... Can you send that number in to, yeah, to the, the district the question. office? <laughs> if anybody from the district office is listening, do dogs count? <laughs> if so, I know some dogs who, who are at home having the TV left on for them and they watch us. That's where <laughs> some of our viewers are. Uh, you do wonder, though. We're, we are trying to take on... Pat Robertson in the 700 Club for a whole new generation. All right, Amanda, we're going to be talking about the Church of the Nazarene, and we really are going to be discussing what it means for us to be doing today in the Church of the Nazarene. Normally, our podcast follows a variety format. Today, we're going to be discussing the single topic, and we're going to spend some time with that. Anthony is going to moderate it. And Anthony, what is our first question for today? So, why not just a Protestant church? This is a great question. And again, Anthony is going to be moderating. He has a bell and he has permission to ring the bell if either myself or Amanda speaks for more than three minutes. However, it's coming at a cost to Anthony. Every time he rings the bell, we're putting a mark on this. And for every time he hits the bell, we're going to get a brick and we're going to eventually turn Anthony into an anchorite. (laughs) And if you know your church history, anchorites are basically monastic people who are walled up in a small cell permanently, sort of like being in prison voluntarily and for church purposes. So Anthony ringed it, rang it twice then, so he's already got two bricks. It's coming along. There are certain traditions that I'm down with. Holiness bow tie, sounds pretty cool. Anchorite, no thanks. Not quite yeah, sure about we'll, that one. We'll come back to the holiness bow tie. Anyways, Amanda, why don't you start with this? Because I know in our previous conversations we've had on the podcast, you were really excited that we didn't just use the name we're a Protestant church, but we were more specific in saying we're a Wesleyan church. Right. Well, because Protestant is such a vague term, and it, the more it's used nowadays, for a lot of people, all Protestant means is not Catholic. Um, and we're going to discuss this a little bit further when we talk about tradition, but there does seem to be this disconnect that actually Protestant church came from Catholicism. The Catholic church or the Roman Catholic church came from the early apostolic church when the church wasn't divided between West and East. So there's a whole history behind this. And so also there is a lot of different denominations within Protestantism. There are uh, Reformed, there's Anglican, um, then you kind of have different flavors here in the United States that have kind of grown up. And because the Nazarene Church does directly relate our history to movements in the United States, we have kind of a, our own different flavor of that. Um, and really we're so far removed from Protestantism that we weren't directly involved in any kind of protest. That's how we got the name Protestantism. And really we can closely tie ourselves to Anglicanism, which is part of Protestantism, a result of it, and but has a slightly different version. And also the American holiness movement, which is really um, quite different than Reformed theology or, or Lutheran theology that is more directly tied towards the Reformation. Yeah, and another point in this too, a lot of times when people say Protestant, you're referring to things like Anglicans, maybe Lutherans or other high church systems where even though they're not Catholic, they're still structured very much like that. They're still kind of framed as being an alternative to that that still looks very similar to it. It still has a lot of the high church elements in their architecture, in their liturgy, and things of that nature. Whereas something more specific as the word term Wesleyanism, you find that, again, we're a holiness church, and we don't necessarily look a lot like that. We don't 
follow the same structure of service. We don't follow the same structure of, of how we practice our day-to-day -day faith. So it looks a little different. And being more specific with something like Wesleyanism really helps clarify a lot of this. So the next topic I want us to talk about is what, Anthony? Since you're the one moderating, what are we going into with the B topic? It will be Sola Scriptura. All right, so the problems with Sola Scriptura. So if you're not familiar with the phrase Sola Scriptura, this means by Scripture alone. And there are a lot of issues which have come into the modern world out of theologies based in Sola Scriptura, which says Scripture alone is all you need. And now on the surface, you might say, well, why would you need anything more than Scripture? John Wesley, who is one of the early people involved in the Methodist movement, he's very influential. Him is his brother Charles, as well as Susanna Wesley. They're very influential in modern churches like the United Methodist, take something like even the Salvation Army, and it's especially in the Church of the Nazarene. They're all very influential churches, or I should say they're all influenced by John Wesley. John Wesley was very much a believer in Scripture and its importance. But also he realized that scripture should also go along with tradition and it should go along with reason. We should never divorce scripture from tradition or reason and we should never divorce reason and tradition from scripture. They should all be balanced with one another. And this is where you get something more modern such as the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which also throws experience in there, but modern people really take the word experience to mean something a bit different. So we're going to move past that one a little bit for time purposes. But, Amanda, what does the actual manual in the Church of the Nazarene say about Scripture? How right. should we approach Scripture? So our fourth article of faith, we have 16 articles of faith, and our fourth one is about the Bible. Also, just note that in our articles of faith, we start with God and not Scripture. But anyways, let us continue. Um, our article, of course, says we believe in the plenary insp inspiration of the Holy Scripture, by which we understand that 66 books of the Old and New Testament, so we do believe in the Protestant canon, given by divine inspiration, inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning us and all things necessary to our salvation. And that's a very important phrase um, as we move forward when we talk about Wesleyanism versus fundamentalism. Okay, and then it continues as, and so that whatever <laughs> is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. Yeah, and the sola scriptura mentality, which is not what the Church of the Nazarene is, by the way. We're not sola scriptura. We balance scripture with tradition and reason. And our statement is that scripture is without error in its ability to take you to salvation. Now, that's different from just saying scripture is holistically without any sort of error or flaw. And the reason why we say that is because, look, when you look at scripture, there's different writing styles. You do get differences between translations, and you even get some textual issues that come when one person has copied a text to another. There are a lot of little minor issues that happen in specific words and in grammar and things like that throughout Scripture. However, when you look at Scripture as a whole and you look at the sentiment which Scripture is conveying, it is without any issue, without any error in its ability to take people to God and to take people towards salvation. Scripture has no issue or error in taking people towards salvation, even though there may be a little piece here and there which may have some issues. And this is why it's important for us to understand. I know, like, when we say we don't believe in Sola Scriptura, some of y'all are grabbing your pitchforks and your torches, right? And <laughs> about to check to see if we really need to be ordained. But let's 
here everything we're saying and talking about this is scripture is vital it is important it is inspired by god but also scripture is the recorded history the tradition and reason and experience of the people of god and so that does not begin or end with genesis or revelation but continues as god speaks to people and so so scripture the vitally important please don't come out come bring the mob at us quite yet um, it is very important, but it does need to be balanced because it itself can become an idol if we give it too much credit. Yes, and on that note, if you are interested in sending your pitchforks, you can send them to 6186 Eaton's Creek Road, Jolton, Tennessee, which is where Jolton Church of the Nazarene is located. You can come find me there and, and bring your pitchforks. I'm, I am not deterred. Uh, anyways, uh, back to the whole Sola Scripture thing. There are a lot of people, and it, I find it, and this is the same with the whole idea of sanctification versus predestination, because those are kind of two things which get opposed to one another. The people who say Scripture is 100% without flaw, they think that they are elevating the quality of Scripture when really they're kind of limiting it. And we've talked about this before. It's the same mentality when people say God knows every action you're about to do. He knows every choice you're going to make. They took at Scripture and they say, oh, it says God knew you before you're born. God created you and even in the womb, he knew everything about you. He knows tomorrow and every day afterwards. And they say there's no possibility that that God could not know everything about the future. And what this ultimately leads to is a world where there is no free will. And they think that by painting God in this picture of saying God is this micromanager who knows everything you're about to do, that they're elevating his ability to be omnipowerful, omnipotent, and omnipresent, they're actually diminishing it. Because again, if you imagine something like a train layout and you were to go and build a HO scale train layout, you know, that would be impressive, but at the same time, it's not something which really works by itself. However, if you were actually to make a mechanical system where you could leave it alone and it could actually run itself a little bit and it could create and it could develop and it could progress and evolve in ways, that would be a lot more impressive. It's like imagining if you took a piece of paper and you drew a clock on it. Anthony likes watches. And every few minutes you came and you drew a new clock with a new hand. And you put it on the wall and every minute of the day you had to go draw a new picture and replace it. That would be a huge task. And it would be a lot less impressive us of a task than if you actually built a clock that could actually start to run. Now I'm not making the argument that God's a clockmaker because God is unmistakably involved in life. However, the fact that God could create beings, which we ourselves have free will, just as God has free will, we have the ability to be rational as God is rational. We have the ability to create and to develop as God does. That is a lot more impressive. And I'm actually kind of glad Anthony rang the bell. Two more bricks. You yes. guys have uh, two more bricks. Finished it off pretty quickly on the other uh, sections. So moving on to the next one. Well, hang on a second. You see, if we can get him to ring this bell more, we won't have to worry about like paying him or housing him. I mean, we just had to fill out the stuff because of his housing arrangements with the university. You know, if we just brick him up, he won't have to worry about going to school. He doesn't have to worry about a thing. All your life is provided through you through one, one hole in the wall. You just got to look into the sanctuary. Anchorite life, man. Notwithstanding the anchorite life, as it is, I guess, the cool new hip way of saying. It is. Um... We need to let Amanda see if she has anything to add to that. Oh, no, that's right. I think, I think we can move on to, to the next topic because I think this relates back to Scripture. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, you find out why I demanded Anthony moderate this because I will stay on one topic forever. <laughs> Anyways, Anthony, I will I will let you do your your job. So, what about reason starting with Amanda? Yes. Okay, so this is why I said it's vitally important. So as we look at Scripture and we say that Scripture is vital and important, we do see reason. And when we say reason, we are talking about reason that starts and is sustained and will find its conclusion in the life of God. So a lot of times when people say reason, they think of like Greek philosophers and humanistic philosophers. They're like, oh, no, that's that's terrible. And it's not. If, again, we're saying that this reason is found in the life of God. And this becomes important because as we look at our scripture, if you've ever read scripture, a lot of it, or even just a little bit, you can read things that seemingly on the surface contradict. And you say, well, I read Paul and he says we are saved by faith and not by works. But then I read in James, uh, oh gosh, I just lost it. James, right? Well, you can find in other places. But, right. Where I mean, we, we by just... f- yeah, you are, uh, you know, say you have faith and show me your works, uh, that faith without works is dead. And so we look at that and we say, oh, maybe those contradict, but actually they don't. If we use the reason God has given us, if we look at scripture in its entirety, if we understand the history and the context of which those letters were written, we find that they're all saying one message. And so that's what I'm saying. So reason becomes important, especially in um, going with scripture, not over and against scripture, but, and we find reason in scripture as well. Well, to build off what you're saying a little bit, in the epistles of John, you get this language of how important it is for not to just listen to what people say, but also watch what they do. I don't know if this is exactly some of the stuff Amanda was going towards earlier, but there's a specific phrase in the the epistles of John where he says, and you don't need a teacher. Again, if you have the sola scriptura mentality, you come in and say, oh, this says I didn't need a teacher. Well, I don't need a pastor. I don't need an educator. I don't need, I don't need no fancy education. <laughs> and you can get out your gross motor skills and your 1611 authorized and slap it with gross motor skills never let your fingers touch be sure to make those crude ghost motor skills work for their money and say i don't need no education but really when you apply reason and tradition to that verse you will find that what paulus or not paul what john john the writer the evangelist is saying is you don't need a teacher because the holy spirit can come in your life you do need people to teach you however you don't need a gatekeeper because in the time that John was writing this, in that part of the church, there were heretics involved in saying, we have the gospel, you can't have it. You have to listen to our teachings because you can't personally have them. You cannot have a personal life with God where you are transformed. You must rely on our teachings because you are existentially removed from that for all eternity. Excuse me, John, almost said Paul again. John tells them, you do not need a teacher In other words, you do not need a gatekeeper for the kingdom of God. You, just as much as any other human who has accepted the transformation of Christ, you have access to God. Jesus died on the cross. That was one one sacrifice which was sufficient for everyone. You do not need other people to come for you. You do not need someone to come and be the arbiter of your salvation. That is a person. That's what he's telling them. But again, if you just do sola scriptura, you can interpret that however you want. You right. can handle snakes. And, that's what, and just to clarify, um, I was talking about uh, faith Faith without works is dead, which is found in James. And what he was talking about was in John. Um, and I just want to clarify that because I, I think both of us were kind of stumbling over names. But in case you wanted to investigate those ideas further, that's where those ideas are found. 
And again, send your pitchforks. <laughs> 6186. Bring it on. Bring it on. And again, if you're going to send your pitchforks, at least subscribe first. You can get on <laughs> YouTube, subscribe to Kingdom Logos, and write in the comments or section. You can you can invest in us at Patreon slash Kingdom of the Logos, yes. and we'll buy the our own pitchforks. We will buy our own pitchforks <laughs> for you. Amanda's, I mean, yeah, we're good. We're good. All right. And Anthony hasn't rang the bell yet, so. I think we're doing good. So, we yeah, let's go. Good. Right on the threshold. So, um, the next topic we're supposed to talk about is tradition. Now, uh, I know Dylan is worried about that we, the church, divorce ourselves from our own history. So, we'll start with Dylan on this topic. All right. Let me talk about one of the things which really worries me. It doesn't so much worry me in my local church. I am very blessed to have a wonderful parish out here in Jolton. My congregation, the, the people in our fellowship are just wonderful. And even the Nazarenes, or the Church of the Nazarene members, I know throughout our district and even around the world, wonderful people. However, there is a growing theme, and it's been growing for a long time. It's not a new theme, but it's one that, that grows and evolves. That is, people don't grow up being taught church history. They divorce themselves from it. All that sounds wordy. Let me sum it up like this. Most people, if you're not in what is essentially Catholic or maybe Anglican, most people in the Protestant world don't really want to know church history after the book of Acts until the favorite pastor of their oldest living relative. So there's a gap between those two points. So basically they like church history from the Gospels to the book of Acts, and then they don't care what was going on up till the, the favorite pastor of their oldest living relative. They don't really want to know about John Wesley. They don't want to know about the last 2,000 years of church history. And even when you look at things within Scripture, for instance, the epistles of John, they find learning the epistles of John, but they don't necessarily want to know the history behind it, one, because it's boring, but also because it was not explicitly outlined in Scripture like you get in the Gospels in the book of Acts where they say, this is what's going on, here's the story, here's all the little tiny details. So many times our... Protestant world has divorced itself from church history. We've said, oh, that's Catholic. Write it off. Dressing in such a way that shows people you're a pastor every day, that's Catholic. Write it off. You have saints. Mm, it feels weird. Write it off. And they don't want anything to do with that. And that really bothers me because we end up rehashing out theological issues that people have sorted out long ago. You get myths about the structure of the early church and you get people just wildly uninformed of things. And not even intentionally so, but it, it lessens the quality of the church when we don't know our history because the people in the, the Church of Christ have been doing amazing things over the last 2,000 years, and we should know about it. Amanda? Yes, and, and uh, to build off of that, um, we've been at, at Trinity Church of the Nazarene, we've been doing a Sunday school lesson a series on church history, and we've been using Null's book, uh, Turning Points, which I believe Dr. Hoskins uses at Trevecca to teach his class as well. And I by no means am saying I am... Hoskins equal. I'm just saying I've used some of his books uh, that he has suggested. Um, and, and it's amazing to see how much we don't normally learn about our church history. But when we learn about our church history and understand it, we do. We, we find that a lot of the battles we're fighting now have already been fought and decided. I mean, we see today heresies creeping into our church and we're like, well, wait, the church has pretty well settled this issue. It's gotten a different packaging, used a little bit different language, but We've really already okayed it. And I'm going to use this little example I, I was talking uh, to Dylan and Anthony about it earlier. 
Um, recently, uh, my husband has been expressing a call to the ministry, and he's wanting to get his local license and then his district license. And in the Church of Nazarene, you have to um, take classes for that, either at a, an established Nazarene university, or they kind of have a list that says if you don't take it at a Nazarene play, um, university, this is how you can do it through your district or other sources. And one of the classes that they now are requiring the ordinance to take is a history of women in ministry. And it frustrated me. Because the Nazarene Church, since its conception, has always ordained women. Even if we look at, at the book of Acts and we read the stories, we hear of women being leaders in ministry. And it is infuriating that we have so divorced ourselves from our history that we have to reteach it because people are just so phenomenally ignorant. And I'm getting on my soapbox, and I'm going to try to calm down. Well, it, it, really it demeans it. It treats it like it's a not it's an anomaly. Yes. And it also treats it like it's a new thing, like, oh, we're in this anomalous new territory, where if you spend any time looking at church history, it just, the whole narrative falls apart, that women haven't been crucial to the life of the church and the propagation of the church. Again, we talked about this in our show prep. In the early church, most of them moved from the synagogues to the houses. Guess who ran the houses during the day while the men were out working in the fields? It was... The women who were running the household, and that's... They so they were really, ran churches. They were running their early churches for a long time. And again, even if you followed at Kingdom of the Logos, when you look at the saints of history, you'll find that it's actually... They're pretty well split. And it's not because somebody went in there and forced that to happen. It's just because it naturally occurred. This is the truth. Yeah, it's absolute <laughs> truth. God called people and he said, I don't care where you're at and your starting point in life. If you will accept my testimony, I will use you to build the kingdom. But, yeah. And we look at church history and we find out, oh my gosh, they have been. I know we talk a lot about people like Angela Marici, and we've been making jokes about anchorites before, but you get people like uh, Colette of Corby and St. Colette, she went out. She spent three years being walled up as an anchorite, three or four years, and then goes out and builds so many monasteries. It's unbelievable that this lady would go out and find all this stuff. And her case is not even an anomaly. It's not even an odd one. You find ladies who did this stuff all throughout church history. But we've divorced ourselves from tradition to the point where people are unaware of it. So it has to be treated like it's a new novelty now, which is something which just really bothers me. And... I'm really bothered by our, our divorce from tradition. I wish that we knew more about church history regularly, and I wish that, and even myself included, the more I learn about church history, the more fun I have with it. Look, I, I'm not pretending to be anything other than a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene, but if you go somewhere like franciscamedia.org and just read their saints of the day every day, good things, are, good things will come of you. Yet they have issues. Look, the Catholic Church is riddled with issues right now, but the bell is rung. All right, so um, Amanda, do you have anything to touch up on before? We oh move no, on? That, I've I've done my rant. Okay, I will say we kind of strayed <laughs> off the conversation of tradition, so here's my off the cuff spiel real quick. I don't have anything to preface, but I will say that a lot of people get mixed up by thinking that once you adopt tradition, then automatically you're adopting a new righteousness. Yeah, and that's not correct. You're not adopting a new righteousness. You're adopting extremely hard proven guidelines to promote righteousness. You know, you're you're adopting a path that's going to lead you closer to what true righteousness is. So, tradition is an extremely amazing tool that we've had for hundreds and thousands of years and they it's been proven to work time and time again. So, and I don't want to throw this out there. I'm not making a straw man out of the the congregants in the church of the Nazarene. 
because my experience is there are a lot of people who actually do want to get in history, but yes. it's usually the loudest voices that are opposed to it. There are so many good people, and a lot of you even listening to this right now, who love to get in church history who may not have ever been exposed to it. And usually one of the reasons why is there's a loud voice somewhere who says, no, we don't need to do that. I don't need no church history. I don't need no Catholicism. They come in there and they slap their their authorized text, and they, they slap on it. The fingers never touch, and they say, don't need it. There ain't going to be none of that around here. And... They deprive the people, which again, I think probably anyone in our audience is interested in church history. They deprive the people who are craving that, who are hungry for it from that. And ladies and gentlemen, those in the audience, we've got to stand up again. We've got to embrace our history because as it is right now, and I don't need to go on the, the deep end right now, there's some extremely corrupt things coming out of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Again, I'm not beating up on the, the people who are members of that. But we need to be protecting church history and we need to be preserving it and not rely on others to. We need to be doing that ourselves. Well, Anthony. before we go on, I completely agree. But what about ordination, guys? Starting with Amanda. All right. Okay. You start with Amanda. <laughs> like you're like, oh, fine. No. Um, well, I'm not sure. What it, that's a very vague question. Is there a specific? Like, there is a specific angle of okay. this. And when I had been writing these out, and I had given this list to Anthony to, to read, I want us to talk about why in the Church of the Nazarene we are ordained and how we are ordained. Because for some people, they'd be like, oh, you're ordained. Well, what do you have to do? Be saved for a few months and then the local congregation votes on you and now you're a reverend? That is not at all how it happens in the Church of the Nazarene. It's actually a rather lengthy process. It is a lengthy process. And just to give a very quick, I kind of mentioned this earlier when I said my husband was, so you have to have a local license for a year. That means you express an interest uh, or that you said that you have felt a call into some kind of um, established formal ministry. We believe in the ministry of all believers. We also believe that some of believers feel a call into full-time um, specific ministries, and that is where you go onto the path of ordination. So you get a local license for a year. After that, you can get a district license. And so the Church of Nazarene is divided up into different districts, um, kind of like a diocese, um, if you're more familiar with maybe a, a more um, high church setting, um, or just just sections of or a group of churches. A Methodist, it's very similar to that. <laughs> yes. Um, and so you get a district license. You have to, and there are certain ac- uh educational requirements, classes you have to take. There are certain times of experience that you have to have. Um, and it kind of, there's a general rule and then it, they leave it up to the district to make sure that rule is enforced. And then after that, you can be ordained. But of course you go to these meetings and um, people who have already been ordained ask you questions to make sure theologically and practically you're in line with the Church of the Nazarene. And then after that, there's a special service in which your uh, hands are laid upon you in the tradition that just as Christ called the early disciples, you two are joining that long lineage, that tradition of people who are called to go out and make disciples. Um, and so, yes, like you can, any of you out listening to this right now, you can Google how to be ordained. You can pay somebody money and bam, you're ordained. That's not how the church in Nazarene does it. Um, and like I said, some districts are allowed to expand. They can't make the time um, shorter, but there's some districts that you have to have a district license for 10 years before they ordain you because they really want to make sure you are understand what the call of ministry is requiring of you. Um, so this is a very serious thing. And so when it says that when someone says I am uh, a reverend or I'm ordained in, in the church, 
that should say that they have done the commitment and the time and the education to understand what that means to be a leader um, within the church. And to just package this up really small, it's not local ordination. It's actually global ordination. Yes. It's done by the global general superintendents. So we have usually six or seven dist- or global general superintendents, so they're in charge of the general church. And <clears throat> one of them come and de- comes and ordains you personally. So it's done from somebody who is, again, over the entire global church. So it's not something that happens regularly. It's something one has to wait quite a long time to have that done to you for. There's a huge process of it. I think for a lot of people, it takes around seven years with a district license or something like that before you get ordained. I think that's how many years I had a district license prior to ordination. And then you have that local license before that. So it's a lengthy process. And it requires years of full-time service and ministry. And Anthony. Um, So just to kind of direct it, um, in class today, we had some people who were, let's just say, disgruntled by the idea that only those who are ordained should be approved by the church to lead the sacraments, to baptize people, and to give communion. So what do you all think about that? All right, well, a clarification on that. Um, Those who can do sacraments can be districtly licensed as long as they are assigned to a church or they can be ordained. Um, And the the reason that we do that is this. This is why the Church of Nazarene has decided is because we believe that sacraments are vitally important. They are a means of grace by which we participate in God's grace. They are an outward sign of God's inward grace. All those definitions basically mean that this is this is not something you do lightly, and therefore it needs to be done led by someone who has that official seal of the church that says this person understands the reverence that it takes to administer these sacraments, and they can do it in a way that is um, in right order to, to each other and to God. Yeah. I don't want to come across this sounding like an angry old prude, but I would almost say tough. Deal with it. Because I think the bar is actually too low for these sort of things. And I think they're actually about right for baptism and administering the sacraments. I think only people with the district license and people who are ordained should. And that's because it should be something that you actually understand. Not just anybody walking in off the street needs to be doing this. It needs to be people who have not just gone through a certain amount of education and credentials doing this, but people who've actually spent some time and commitment and thought through some issues, and they've actually had some firsthand experience teaching and dealing with problems in the church before they're ready to do this sort of thing. And another thing is, I don't want to go down the the sacraments road. We only have two sacraments in the Church of the Nazarene, even though we kind of treat ordination as if it's a sacrament, though it's not officially outlined as one. I'm actually in favor of elevating the bar on some other things that we do. I would like to see things like the forgiving of sins be raised to that, and even marriage, especially in modern Western culture where the value of marriage has been unfortunately quite watered down. I think that we should elevate the status of a lot of these things and say we need to make these officially sacraments. Um, There goes the bell. There is justification. People always make their claims and they say, well, we only want to say things are sacraments that Jesus personally told others to do and that he participated in himself. But, I mean, Jesus anointed the sick. Jesus commanded others to forgive sins. Uh, I think we should really elevate and put emphasis on a lot of things, especially if we're a holiness church. We haven't talked a lot about holiness yet, which I don't think we're going to get time for this today, which is terrible. Again, send your pitchforks to Kingdom of the Logos at Outlook.com and to Jolton Church of the Nazarene. But you got to sign up on Patreon first. so Yes, there you go. Yeah, work that out. And make sure you bring some subscribers to YouTube as well. <laughs> uh, bring us your pitchforks. 
but if we're going to be a church that really does talk about Christian holiness, then we need to emphasize the transformation out of sin, and we should take that seriously. We're in, in our show prep time today, we were talking about how there's so many sins out there which are just brutal, and the, the havoc they wreck on people, and yet we don't want to put the emphasis there on moving out of, out of sin and into holiness like we used to. And I'll stop. Amanda, <laughs> any thoughts on no, any of that before we're moving along? Yes. Let's, do we have time for topic C? I think we're – what time are we at now, Anthony? 35 minutes. Yeah. Uh, we'll go ahead and we'll, – we'll go ahead and end. Right. I was hoping this to be under 30. But thank you for joining us. And we're going to pull up this photo one more time of dogs in the, the pew. The question was – and if you're listening to the podcast, the question was, how do you feel a, a pew on July Sunday? And – the answer to that was found in the photograph. It was dogs, large dogs, laying <laughs> longitudinally across a pew. In other words, to fill up as much space as possible. They're laying down sideways. It's not a bad idea. Though the dogs that I have, or the only dog I have, is kind of small. <laughs> he wouldn't fill up a pew. But Duke's pretty big. Yeah, my you, dog could fill up a pew. <laughs> Amanda, Pastor Amanda and Justin have a very large dog. Um, him and Charlie together would make up about three or four people if they were stretched out. So. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there we go. Get those numbers up. Duke they, would make up about three and a half, and then Charlie would make up like <laughs> the last half. Point yeah. two five. So Charlie you had three point seven five. So you could shoot for four, but Charlie is the size of one Bible in its Bible case. So, <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have a blessed day.